I heard a scream coming from my sister. I heard a thud. Okay, could you describe this sound for Okay, it was about this loud. And then I just, I, I, I just panicked. All right, now, did you get up at that time to investigate what had happened? No, I did not. And could you tell the jury why you didn't? Because I was extremely afraid of my father, and I always have. This is 12-year-old Collier Landry, the only witness in a murder case involving his own father, Dr. Jack Boyle. How long were you and Noreen married? Uh, almost 20 years, and allegedly her body was found under my uh, basement in a uh, new home in Erie, Pennsylvania on January 25th. Any children? Uh, yes, uh, one, one natural child, uh, Collier. How does he feel about all this? I mean, this... Well, he is very distraught. He was manipulated by uh, David Messmore of the Mansfield Police Department and a few other people. So the child basically was brainwashed into thinking his daddy's a murderer. Collier sidled up to me and he started whispering. And he said, uh, my mother would never leave me. This is not right. My mother would never do this. In our line of work, we call that a clue. Compelled to fight his own father, 12-year-old Collier Landry didn't hesitate to face off against the local police department, the media, and even his own family to find his mother. With a little help from one dissident detective, he summoned his courage and started investigating on his own. But little did he know, he was also on the list of his father's future victims. The thing that was overwhelming that fear was my desire to find out what happened to my mother and get justice for her. In the city of Mansfield, Ohio, Known for its steelwork and heavy industry, 11-year-old Collier lives with his father Jack, his mother Noreen, and his newly adopted sister, Elizabeth. At the time, Jack's by far the most successful doctor in town. He had what the investigators called the largest medical practice in Richland County. Uh, one out of 13 people used Dr. Boyle as their physician. But behind closed doors, Jack was a completely different person. Described as a rageaholic by his wife, the man has a quick temper and often goes off without a warning. One day, while Collier was sitting in the living room playing video games, he fell victim to one of his father's bouts. He just started ripping off all the games and throwing them at my head. Then he started making me call myself a stupid little fat boy. He'd say, what are you? And I'd say, a stupid little fat boy. He'd say even louder, he'd what are you? And I said, a stupid little fat boy. This clip was from 1990. At the time, Collier was still a child, but as an adult, he isn't shy of saying the actual words his father used to torture him psychologically. My father called me a pussy and a little fat and all these derogatory terms, you know, not to use the word of the day, but this is truly toxic masculinity, treating your son this way. But his other faults were hardly a secret to anyone. Everybody in town knew of his infidelities, and Jack never had to face the consequences of his actions until the day he casually introduced his latest girlfriend to his own son. My dad got out and he says, well, look who's here, it's Sherry. Then um, I turned to Sherry and I looked at her hand and she had a ring on. And I turned to her and I said, Sherry, my mother has a ring like that. After Collier noticed the ring, he knew he had to tell Noreen. I knew I was in an impossible position. I said, Mom, please sit down. There's something I have to tell you. I think Daddy has a girlfriend. Noreen had reached her limit. She already knew about Jack's cheating, but involving Collier in his affairs was the last straw, so she filed for divorce. Jack tried to convince her to leave Ohio and start fresh, but they ended up staying for the holidays, during which it all went relatively well, until New Year's Eve, when Collier was awakened by a piercing scream coming from his parents' bedroom. Uh, shortly after that, 
his father, you heard him walking down the hallway to uh, his room. And he remembers his father opening the door and looking in at him for a long period of time. Paralyzed by fear, Collier didn't move an inch and waited for his father to leave his room. He kept trying to make sense of what just happened. In the morning, he finally found the courage within himself to get out of his room and face Jack. And so I went downstairs and I said, where's my mother? To my father, and he said, well, mommy took a little vacation, Collier. And then I just, I, I, I didn't know what to say. I just panicked. And so I said, and he said, she'll be back in a few days. And then she just left. Convinced his mother wouldn't just leave him, Collier grabbed her phone book and ran upstairs before his father. So I'd hidden these phone numbers. I take the cordless phone, I go into the bathroom, and I lock the door. And I start calling every single one of my mother's friends. And I tell them what happened. I said, I need you to call the police. While talking to his mother's friends, Collier remembered how scared and depressed his mother had been during the past few years. He couldn't believe he would have to deal with his father on his own from now on. There's a sadness in her eyes. There was just such a sadness with her because she felt so alone. And she probably felt very trapped. And that there was like, there was no way out. When the police arrived, Jack simply told them that he and Noreen got into an argument and she left the house by her own means. Do you have occasion to talk to Noreen early morning of December 31st of 1989? Yes, I was on the sofa uh, in the family room and Noreen came down and woke me up and uh, uh, threw credit cards at me. Did she leave the house then? Mm-hmm. Yes, she did. I saw Noreen get into a car at the edge of the driveway. Left in that car? Left in that car. He insisted on knowing who called them and only gave up the hard look he had towards Collier when the officer said it was one of Noreen's friends. I'm afraid of my father, and I think my father just killed my mother. So I'm really afraid of him and I'm afraid for my life. I know that every day, the longer the time goes on, my life is in more and more danger. At this point, mere days after Noreen was declared missing, nobody suspected foul play. Collier was only a kid after all, and Jack's story made sense. Even David Mesmore, a renowned detective from the region, was easily deceived by the situation. So if you looked at the actual circumstances, uh, they were believable. The fact that she walked out the door, she was very upset. I don't know whether other issue may have, may have come up, maybe another girlfriend or something like that, and uh, would have caused her to just stop and leave. And that's not uh, beyond belief. It's not even unusual in our business. When Mesmore met with Collier for the first time, he seemed distraught, repeating over and over that his mother would never leave him. But Christine Boyle, Jack's 76-year-old mother, quickly dismissed his claims. She was also present on the night of Noreen's disappearance and did hear some commotion, but went on to support Jack's story. She told the detective that three years ago, during the holidays, Noreen got into a fight with him and left without warning, only to come back the next day. She explained that her son asked her to take care of Collier and Elizabeth while he went to Erie, Pennsylvania, to work on the new home he purchased as part of their plan to move away. Days went by without any signs of Jack or Noreen until one neighbor tipped the police, claiming that he was up very early on January 1st and they didn't notice anyone leaving their home at the time. So, they showed up to investigate, but this time had a whole forensic unit ready to comb through the house. When we arrived on Hawthorne Lane, we were fully staffed. We had lab coats. Uh, we went in to process the scene for the potential evidence of maybe a homicide happened. And when we got done, we pretty much just shrugged our shoulders and left. 
This second visit, however, turned out to be way more useful than initially thought. For a minute, Detective Mesmore finally had the time to listen to Collier without his grandmother around. Again, he went over the details of what he heard that night, but also spoke of what his father had been up to since then. Collier also told me that after his father got back from that weekend in Erie, um, his shoulders and arms are very sore and Collier had to rub liniment on him, uh, which was unusual. Mesmore was impressed by the details Collier recalled in such a short burst, seeing that his grandmother was walking toward them and would probably attempt to dismiss Collier once more. He quickly told the kid to call him at the station as soon as he could and gave him his card and left with Christine following behind him. Normally, if you talk to a 10, 11-year-olds, you kind of take part of what they say as being really accurate. But in his case, he was so convincing that I thought, I'm going to have to look into this some more. Determined to find justice for his mother, Collier set out to find a way to talk to Messmore away from his home. I went to school the next day, and I told the principal at the school, you need to call down at the Mansfield Police Department and ask for this guy named Lieutenant David Messmore. Aware that his father could probably kill him for conspiring against him, Collier stuck to the safety of his school to discuss with Mesmore. This relationship was of great use to the detective because he had been barred from entering the Boyle's house after his last visit yielded no results. It was almost as if nobody thought Jack could have possibly done something wrong to his wife. I developed this rapport with Dave Mesmore. He would come to school and I would be like, I told him the first day, I was like, I'm going to go home, I'm going to run upstairs, and I'm going to pull the bookcases out of the wall, the shelves, and look behind them and see if I can find my mother's body. I'm almost, I'm not even 12 years old at this time. Mesmore was worried about Collier's safety and pressed him to stop investigating on his own. But knowing that the kid probably couldn't help himself, the detective made sure he understood the gravity of his situation. Collier needed to be absolutely certain he couldn't get caught because if his father was truly a murderer, there was no way to guarantee he wouldn't take care of him in the same way he did Noreen. These are the conversations I'm having with this man. I'm like, I knew she would have, if she was gonna leave, she would take this person, she would bring this, I'm gonna see if that person is in the house. And this back and forth went on for weeks. Messmore would ask Collier what he found inside the house, while Collier would ask him what progress the police made. Every morning, the kid would go to his school's principal's office and ask the same question. You need to get him here. Like, every day, I'm, I'm like wanting to talk to him. Like, what happens? What do you know? What do you this? But there wasn't much to share on Messmore's side. His department was pretty much convinced that Jack's retelling of the events was correct. To them, this was only a woman who left after learning of her husband's cheating. Not a murder, not an assault, not even a crime. So the detective had his back against the wall. It was only him and an 11-year-old boy against his whole department, against their whole town. Unbeknownst to me, like he was catching from his captain because it's like, okay, you're now investigating a doctor in our small town. We don't do that. Like they got into a fight, she left. He goes, yeah, but there's something about this kid. As his captain was about to close the case, Collier came to Mesmore with a new clue. The police had no proof of Sherry's involvement with Jack up to this point, but Collier, while his father left him alone in his truck to pay for gas, started going through the glove compartment and found two photographs of him and Sherry, inside and outside of his new home in Erie. During this time, so I find the picture of the house, I tell Mesmore about this. Immediately, Mesmore assembled his team once again. 
They contacted the real estate agent behind the transaction and all the hardware stores in Mansfield and Erie, asking if anybody had bought a shovel in the last month. They even called Sherry herself, asking about the affair. This level of scrutiny tipped Jack off. There was someone working against him. The police couldn't know all of these details without someone feeding them information, and this is when he told Collier that they would be leaving for Florida the following day. When asked why, Jack was evasive. That same day, Collier called Messmore in a panic. He realized that, like, literally, this is the only witness to a potential murder, and this guy's gonna kill his son. After listening to Collier, the detective reassured him that they would get him out of Jack's house as soon as possible, and that they would stop investigating until they could guarantee his safety. The following day, CPS agents and police officers raided the house. On the morning of January 24th, 1990, I woke up at 6 a.m. to these two strangers in my room, and they're literally like, you have 20 minutes to pack a bag and your things, we're leaving. With Collier out of harm's way, Messmore and the Mansfield Police Department went on with their investigation. First, they met with Michelle Barth, the realtor who sold the house to Jack. She explained that the woman who signed the contract with Jack wasn't Noreen. The real estate agent described the young lady that was with Dr. Boyle as being pregnant and uh, very young, and uh, certainly that didn't uh, resemble the, the photos that uh, I had of uh, Noreen. She went on to explain how Jack pressured her client to allow him to move in early, insisting that the house should be entirely emptied by January 1st. But it was her last comment that truly shook Messmore and his colleagues. He says, if I were to break into the basement floor, what will I hit? What is underneath that floor? And what was your response to that then? Why? Why would you want to do something like this? Next to Michelle Barth in the police list of clues were the hardware stores. Often, before or after committing a murder, the culprit will buy supplies to help dispose of the body, as seen in our recent coverage of the Sarah Maynard case. After making a few calls, Messmore got a new clue. Apparently, two days before Noreen's disappearance, Jack rented a jackhammer at a local store. This information, paired with the realtor's declaration, got Messmore thinking. It seemed almost too crazy to be true, but he got himself a warrant to search the Erie property, bringing with him a crew of technicians equipped with shovels and pickaxes. So as the technicians were on the floor and looking around, one of them went over to the wall of the concrete block basement and said, there's a little bit of new, new concrete. It's like a mortar or something. It's kind of soft. The whole basement had already been renovated when the police arrived. The floor was freshly painted gray, there was green carpet over most of the area, and there even was brand new shelving on each side of the room. But Messmore didn't let any of this fool his judgment. When one of his men told him that the floor was soft, he asked them to tear the whole place apart. Uh, at that point, after we'd knocked down the shelving and uh, pulled up the indoor-outdoor carpeting, it was apparent that there was a little depression in the floor. They started digging, and soon enough, were struck by the foul smell. Indeed, there was a body entombed in the concrete, rendered unrecognizable by weeks of decomposition. Jack was immediately arrested, and a forensic team was dispatched to the scene. They found nothing in the house, nothing in the basement, and even looked at his cars. We did vacuum sweepings from all the cars. We tried to see if there was any association with a victim in the car that would not be normal, and there was really nothing that was drawn of any value from the analysis of the Bureau. 
Stuck with an unrecognizable body without any physical evidence to back their claims, the police didn't have much to bring to the upcoming trial, so Detective Mesmer paid a visit to Collier while he was in foster care. He intended to ask him to testify against his father at the trial, but before that, Collier had a few questions concerning his mother. Yeah, so that was the first question I asked him was, did she look like she had peace? Was she okay? I think he said yes, you know, she was, you know, she was dead, but these are the things that you go through and you, when you are trying to come to grips with something that is this tragic and dramatic. It's like my whole life had just changed in the blink of an eye. At this point, both sides of his family completely cut ties with him, claiming that he was too young to testify and that he shouldn't be taken seriously. The detective in front of him seemed to be the only person able to listen and understand him in the turmoil. In a moment of weakness, the boy broke down crying in front of Mesmore. Uh, I'm a kid sitting in foster care. I wrapped up this like whirlwind of a, of a case in my hometown. Like I remember sitting in, in, in the bedroom and just kind of like in this really dark place. It's like at like 12 years old, like what is my life going to look like? I have no family. I've lost my mother and my father, my family. Nobody wants anything to do with me, right? Mesmore looked him dead in the eyes and told him that there was still a way to make this right. If he would agree to testify, he could finally prove them wrong and get justice for his mother. Without any hesitation, Collier said yes. When the trial came, of course, I was not going to lie for him. I was not going to say I don't want to testify or anything. To me, felt like a lie because I know what happened. I knew she was dead. I knew all this. I was working with the police, all that. I knew that this was the right thing to do, as much as it hurt. Five months later, on June 4th, 1990, the trial started and Collier finally came face to face with his father. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son of accused murderer, Mansfield Dr. John Boyle, finally took the stand. Can you tell us who you are? I'm Collier Landry Boyle. Collier started by telling the jury of his father's infidelities, recalling his encounter with Sherry wearing his mother's ring, the pictures he found in Jack's truck, and the loud noises and screams he heard on New Year's Eve. Afterward, Sherry too took the stand. We have a defendant here who was a uh, womanizer and he would engage in one affair after another. Sherry, have you recently had a baby? Yes, I have. And who is the father of that baby? Jack Boyle. The motive, prosecutors say? so he could move into that house with younger girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, who was carrying his baby. It's actually better than a soap opera because it happened right in our own town. I did not kill Noreen. I never harmed her at all. A Richland County jury watched a gruesome videotape of Noreen Boyle's body being exhumed from a shallow concrete grave. It was like seeing something out of a horror movie, only this was real. After a month-long trial, the jury rendered their judgment. We, the jury in this case, find the defendant, John F. Boyle Jr., guilty of the offense as charged in the indictment. The judge said he would tolerate no outbursts in the courtroom, but they cheered in the hallway when Dr. John Boyle was found guilty of killing his wife, Noreen. But Collier's ordeal wasn't over yet. For years, members of his family tried to force a retrial. Collier's uncle even went as far as claiming that he talked to Noreen after the murder and that the body they found belonged to someone else. From his jail cell, Jack reviewed the autopsy report and spotted many errors and inconsistencies. This prompted the prosecution to exhume Noreen's body four years later and perform a DNA test since the technique didn't exist at the time of trial. That was where he tried to poke a hole uh, in a major hole 
in the prosecution's case. But forensic evidence actually backfired on him and showed conclusively that it was in fact Noreen Boyle. Following these events, Collier and Elizabeth were separated. He was sent to a loving foster family, grew up in relative normalcy, and eventually became a successful filmmaker. But his father never stopped harassing him. Every few months, he would receive a letter from jail, and this went on for most of his life. Over that 25 years, my father did everything he could in his power to have me rescind my testimony, to help him get out, anything that this man could do to manipulate me. But six years ago, Collier set his foot to the ground and took matters into his own hands once again. He set out to produce a documentary finally lifting the veil upon his side of the story. Now in the film's final scene, I confront my incarcerated father in prison. I'm gonna have that moment where I can ask this man why. But Collier never got his answer. Jack's disillusion was just too ingrained. He simply had to accept that he'll probably never know why his father did what he did. But what seemed like a failure ended up helping him realize something much more important. Then I realized something. Why looks into the past. But what now? What now looks to the future? In a way, his story has never been about the why, but always about what now. And what he's doing now is helping others move past their traumas through his own victim advocacy. So when it comes to resilience, biography, is not destiny. You can be both the author and the audience of your life.